Good evening. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, our ninth lecture in the Rare Book School Summer Series of Public Lectures. Uh, we are particularly indebted tonight to Vic Zoshak and Tavistock Books, who is our sponsor. Um, you could probably find Tavistock Books on TavistockBooks.com, I'm guessing. Um, you could find Vic sitting in the back of the room or accost him at one of the rare book receptions, like the one immediately following this lecture. Um, we are very grateful to Vic for his ongoing generosity in this and in many other ways, including some vital scholarship support to the school. I'm not in the habit of awarding medals, but if I were to award a medal for public service to book history, it would go to Nick Bassbanes, because I think more than any other individual, he has brought book history and bibliography broadly conceived to a wide variety of publics through his journalism in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, Smithsonian, Humanities, Civilization, the New England Quarterly, and, and, and. Those articles have had a powerful cumulative effect, me think. His first book, A Gentle Madness, Bibliophiles, Bibliomanes, and the, external, the Eternal Passion for Books, um, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in nonfiction way back in 1995. It was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and I remember it causing quite a sensation. It's now, I think, in its... 13th or 14th printing, and it's sold more than 120,000 copies. That's a big audience. That's reaching a lot of people because Bassbanes' work is always accessible, always entertaining. In 2001, he produced a companion volume. Take note, rare book school students, print tends to breed print. Patience and Fortitude, a roving chronicle of book people, book places, and book culture. Um, David McCulloch commented on that book and said, Bass Baines is the public authority in the book world. I didn't say that he was the leading bibliographer in the book world. He said he was the leading public authority, which I think is important because I think Nick would say he is, I would say of Nick certainly, he is expert at mediating to the public in the way the public can understand, in a way that the public can be informed and delighted, as Horace told us the public was meant to be. Um, 
a whole series of books followed which were extremely successful and that led a small university in New Haven, Connecticut which has a scholarly press to commission Nick Bassbanes to write the history of Yale University Press which he published to great acclaim in 2008. I recommend to you A Splendor of Letters. I recommend to you Patience and Fortitude. I recommend to you most heartily his most recent book, On Paper, the book he's going to be talking about today. The library journal called On Paper pretty much irresistible. Publishers Weekly said an absolutely fascinating tale told in an engaging and accessible manner. Vastbane's coverage of the topic is wide-ranging, freewheeling, authoritative, an essential engrossing book that no book lover should be without. Here truly is an audience of book lovers and concomitantly no audience of book lovers should be without Nick Bassbanes. <laughs> That's a tough introduction to get started. Thank you, Michael. You forgot to mention when I went to the University of Hawaii with my wife a few years ago after they had a flood and we went there to help them. Can you hear me all right back there, by the way? Good. Uh, after they had a flood, we were going to help them uh, in the restoration and the conservation, gave a talk. And on the, in the uh, student newspaper, they read a piece about my coming, and they said, Bibliomaniac in Paradise, which I, which I figured will be my epitaph on the, on the tombstone. I like that much better than the Alfred Kinsey of the book world that I got up in Calgary, <laughs> Calgary Canada. Really, it's great to be back uh, at Rare Book School, and it was so appropriate. I attended one of Michael's classes this morning, and the first thing he did was toss out a bunch of paperbacks, Harlequins. This is not a Harlequin. But, and, and one of the purposes of that was to try and decide and determine how we uh, approach books be, before we even read them by the, what I like to call the paratextual elements, what, what you were calling the bibliographical codes, I think, if I have that correct. Uh, they are, uh, uh, reinforce one another. But here's the paperback of, on paper on the right, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, a little different. I shouldn't look at the screen. I've got it right here. And the hardcover on the left. In both instances, you'll see that there is no art other than a sheet of paper. Uh, publishers are notorious for not listening to authors when they, when they ask for certain uh, things to do with the art. But in this instance, I, I asked for type, and if you could possibly replicate a sheet of handmade paper, and they did, I think, splendidly, especially with, uh, with the hardcover. Wonderful having an audience like this tonight that is, I believe, familiar with a lot of my work, so I don't have to explain and look into... Uh, uh, dumbfounded eyes, why in the world I decided to write a book about paper. I traveled and I said, what in the world, what prompted you to write a book about something so everyday, so ubiquitous, so taken for granted? Well, after nine, eight previous books, and Michael, thank you for going through all of them and saying, saying such nice things about them, after having written about so many different aspects of books, book culture, bibliomania, bibliophilia, what's the difference? Do we get into that at Rare Book School? 
I think I say in General Madness, the bibliomane is the is the is the slave of his books, the bibliophile, their their master. But one never knows, as Hans Bohata, the great bibliographer, said, when one crosses the line. And my wife was always asked, "Is your husband a bibliomaniac?" She said, "If not, he's certainly a great risk." And uh, <laughs> the house is overrun with books. We try to cull, we try to weed. And there always seem to be more the next day. I mean, they, they breed. It's like having bunny rabbits in the cellar. I don't, I don't know where they all come from. But it just seemed, after having written these uh, eight books, one of which, Splendor of Letters, uh, Michael mentioned, did have a chapter or two in there uh, dealing with writing surfaces through history. One of the mantras we hear at Rare Book School is, the book as we know it certainly uh, uh, for, for many centuries has come to us bound between hard covers on paper, but books have come in uh, baked clay tablets and papyrus scrolls uh, uh, on silk, on bamboo, on me- uh, flattened metal sheets. Uh, really, it's, it's, the, it's really been a multitude of media, whatever has been available and available in abundance. Uh, so it just seemed like a natural thing for me to do, to try and write a book uh, about the principal medium of transmission for us, certainly in the West, for many hundreds of years. Unfortunately, well, fortunately as the case may be, once I got started, the subject totally began to captivate me. Out of 18 chapters in the book, I think only, I can say that only four really deal with books, libraries, manuscripts. Uh, it just became such a fascinating subject in and of itself. Uh, I guess the, the, the ubiquitousness of it uh, in one instance, I mean, you have the, uh, uh, a, uh, an association of British papermaking historians who estimate that there are 20,000 commercial uses of paper in the world today, and it's a product that's only 2,000 years old. And like so many extraordinary materials, unlike glass or, or, or steel or any of the other, the wheel, whatever you can name, we know pretty much where paper came from, when it was invented, and really who invented it. You can really pin a date on it. And what's really remarkable about paper for me is that there was nothing at all inevitable about it. The Chinese clearly must have been inspired when they figured that you could take any sort of cellulosic material, any vegetative matter, you could pound it into a pulp, you could release these these fibers, you would mix them in copious amounts of water, you would pass it through a screen, the water would would empty, and what you would have left is a, a, a layer, a film of what we call paper. Remarkable, and it was a proprietary craft in China for 500 years. So therein started its tale. But it really did begin here, if I may say so, seven years ago, Rare Book School. That's Timothy Barrett, MacArthur Fellow. I took his course with John Bidwell in 2007. I was already a year into the book. If anyone can be said to be the godfather of this book, it would be Tim Barrett. Tim had invited me out to the University of Iowa to speak. And he just, for the two or three days that I was there, he kept uh, just regaling me with stories of paper, paper history. And I finally, you know, it started to kick in. And I said, you know, there could be a book here. He said, I was wondering how long it would take for you to feel that way. <laughs> and uh, then he invited me to come and uh, take this course. By that time, I had already pitched an idea to a publisher. And, uh, so I already had a contract. The, the feeling then in 2007 is that this book would, would have been published in 2009. It wasn't really supposed to take me eight years to do, but, you know, funny things happen. But really, if you're going to do a book about uh, paper, you have to uh, deal with China. Now, normally when I give this presentation, I don't, give, I, I don't put the little title up there. 
I use this as a quiz. Of course, I, I've answered the question. If anyone can tell me what this is so we know that it's the Diamond Sutra of 868 AD. Fully, my math skills aren't great, but we'll say 550 years prior to Gutenberg's uh, invention of uh, uh, making type, metal type, uh, in Germany. So uh, what you're looking at in one image are two of the four outstanding inventions of antiquity that the Chinese claim for themselves. Two are gunpowder and the magnetic compass, but the other two are printing and paper. And you're really looking here at the Diamond Sutra. Sir Oral Stein uh, recovered it from the, uh, uh, the caves of the Thousand Buddhas in the early years of the 20th century. It's in the British Museum. It's the only copy extant. And what you're looking at is really the first known printed book. So that meant I had to go to China. This is a pretty picture, and that's really why it's here. It's, uh, it's the Salween River in uh, Yunnan province. For three weeks, just two months after having taken this course here with Tim and John Bidwell, I joined a group of eight paper historians led by an octogenarian woman from Brookline, Massachusetts, by the name of uh, Elaine Koretsky. I don't know if many of you know Elaine. But for many, many years, 40 years or so, she has been kind of a dard hunter in a way. She's been determined to travel much of the world, particularly the Far East, documenting as often as she can instances of hand papermaking. And I got in touch with her, or maybe Tim put me in touch with her. It's hard to remember how these things happen. But she invited me to join this group of eight papermakers. I was really eight paper historians, shall I say. I was the only civilian, so to speak, in the group. I was, uh, they were really professional paper historians. But for three weeks... We traveled through Yunnan province and Sichuan province, seeking out instances of paper being made in much the same way as it was when invented in China about 2,000 years ago. So early part of the trip was along the old Burma Road, which you see down below. The Burma Road gained fame during World War II, flying over the hump. You see the foothills of the Himalayas in the background, delivering supplies to Chiang Kai-shek. The new Burma Road up on top. A 3,000-mile expressway from uh, Beijing to Mumbai made our travel a lot easier, but we went from one village to the other trying to find papermakers. Many of the old ways still persist. The gentleman you see in the lower left is, a, is a Guan Kaiyun. He's a member of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, director of the Kunming Botanical Institute, an international authority on uh, botany, of course, and all sorts of uh, the productive uses of vegetation, all sorts of plant life. He was our guide, speaks perfect English, and he really was especially eager to come along because he wanted to see instances of paper being made from vegetation by hand, he said, because one generation, two generations, and it will be all gone. This is at a place called Jade Spring, very, very close to the Burma border. Uh, when you say multi-generation papermaker, well, I don't know, how many generations are there in 600 years? Uh, his family had been making paper on this particular site in Jade Spring for, they estimated, 600 years. And uh, he and his wife and his son had, uh, passed, uh, have, have continued to make, to make paper. When we were there, however, we were told that in a month or two they were closing and the operation would end forever. Not because of lack of business, but because the grandson, who had been working on that highway, you saw a few slides back, uh, did, wasn't interested in the business, and so they decided to close it down and sell the property. 
Uh, one thing I found, in, uh, not only in China, but in Japan later, that we have these very prominent paper makers, but the wife really does most of the work. And that is his wife there, that's his son in the upper image. Uh, he made all sorts of paper, spirit paper, ledger paper, all by hand, and it was quite, quite remarkable. Everywhere we went, we got, uh, we got samples. Uh, these are, uh, this is the inner bark, these, this is not the inner bark yet, these are uh, saplings, uh, branches from the paper mulberry tree, which, like in Japan, where, where it's called washi, it be, the, the branches are cooked. The bast, that's a new four-letter word that I learned. It's a, uh, it's a term to, to describe the, this fibrous, white fibrous material in the inner bark of the branches of these trees, which, be, which make really wonderful paper. Uh, this kind of paper making, by the way, does not uh, destroy the tree. They just harvest the branches. They harvest always in the winter if they can. The sap isn't running, and it makes for better paper. I met some people in Japan, and they, re they refuse to use any paper that is not made with, uh, with, with, uh, without uh, only paper with, uh, from winter, winter saplings uh, is, is, is what they will use. So we were driving up this uh, road, and Elaine, who had been to hundreds of these places over the years, she shouted, they're cooking, they're cooking. And all the years she'd been going to China and Japan and throughout Southeast Asia or the Philippines, wherever she said she had never really stumbled upon an instance where they were actually cooking. The cooking, the cooking phase of, the, of paper making is done perhaps one or two days a month. These people have other jobs, they farm, so it's really a matter of luck if you arrive and they're, they're doing this and they happen to be doing it when we got there. It was really pretty remarkable. There's, uh, there's, now there's your bass soaking. Uh, getting ready uh, uh, for the next phase in the paper making process. It looks kind of like pasta, doesn't it? It's really a, a very interesting. And every image that you'll see here in this sequence, I could have given you images of paper making going back a thousand years, old Chinese images, and they would be very interesting. But every one really is basically what you're going to see. And I'll go pretty quickly through these phases of the paper making process. And here we are. This was again back at Jade Spring, and he had two commercial. Two women there making, I, I think we, I timed them. They were able to do this three times a minute. So every 20 seconds, this woman would be able to dip her uh, uh, mold into the water, pick it up, do a couple of swishes. There's the post behind her back there. And this is at another uh, paper mill, paper, I guess, uh, studio, you might call it, making three sheets. Drying is done in a variety of ways. Uh, here it's brushed. The sheets are brushed on uh, brick walls, allowed to dry in the sun. You'll see elsewhere uh, other, other uh, techniques. Everyone in China, I found, smoked cigarettes. These are all paper makers taking a break. And uh, spirit paper. Interesting, though. Uh, in a nation of 1.3 billion people, you still have many hundreds of million people who practice Buddhism. And paper, if you, when Marco Polo came back, I mean, we all, paper was just beginning to. Uh, 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 make its presence known in Italy and in Europe. Uh, the first mills were being set up in Italy when he returned. Uh, but what he was most uh, uh, amazed about was how paper was used in Buddhist rituals, how it was used by uh, the great Khan for currency, how they used paper for clothing, and of course writing. But here are some examples of uh, spirit paper being uh, sold, handled, and used as, as an offering at a Buddhist shrine. From uh, Yunnan province, we went up to Sichuan, Land of the panda bear, bamboo. Now you think when you hear that uh, making paper from wood, from trees, was very difficult to master. 
and it really made for a very bad paper when you think about it, as John Bidwell points out in his course here. It really wasn't mastered until the 19th century. You say, well, gee, the Chinese have been making paper from bamboo for hundreds of years. How come? What could they have taught us? Well, bamboo is not a tree. It's a grass. It's very important. It looks like a tree, but it's really a grass. There's no lignin in it. And lignin, as you know, it really makes for very bad paper. And we don't have time to talk about it, but it's in the book. But uh, up here, really, I just missed it. Here are shoots of very young bamboo uh, as, they should, as they were brought into a, a yet another mill. And I'll just go kind of quickly through these slides because we have a lot of them. Uh, again, everyone smoking cigarettes. These... Uh, these men are making what, what uh, is called Xuanza paper. It's named for a province in China. It's really arguably the most beautiful paper. It's used for uh, calligraphy. It's used for art. These are big eight-foot sheets. It takes a two-man team to make them. We've got some examples of it. It's really, really quite spectacular stuff. And these, these places that we found hadn't really been documented. I mean, even Guan, who was showing the way, was really uh, delighted that we were able to run across them. Here uh, is some drying paper and heated metal plates. Again, kind of like James Hilton's Lost Horizon Shangri-La, just gorgeous places. Drying paper in the lofts. I'm moving rather quickly because we have to move along. Uh, my editor, when she saw this particular slide, uh, this is the first female papermaker in, in China. Um, I have difficulty pronouncing her name, but I think it's Xuei Tao. Uh, her years are 768, 831 A.D. She also was a poet of some great renown. A lot of her poetry survives. What you see is the spring in Chengdu where she uh, drew the water to make her paper. And if you see on her gown, you see the image also of a hibiscus. That was her trademark. She used hibiscus as a formation aid and also as part of her fiber. And examples of her paper that survive, and some do have a red tinge, to it, a pinkish tinge, and whenever you see her represented in drawings, it's always with red and pink paper. Uh, but my editor said, that's a great picture. Let's kind of use that as the, the front frontispiece for part one. So from China, to, I went to Japan the next year. Hap happily, I'd gotten an NEH fellowship, which made that possible, and uh, which actually extended the, the research on the book. But when you think of paper, of course, we say it originates in China, and it travels in two directions. And one of the great interests of mine in this book was to trace the migration, and not to get it, in it <clears throat> pardon me, as exhaustively as Dard Hunter did in The History and Technique, who also was published by Knopf. It was kind of a, a liberating event for me to know that Dard Hunter had done this so spectacularly and so beautifully, because I could really be very selective. Uh, but really, you do have to pay attention to the migration going from China along the Silk Road through Central Asia over to Samarkand, making its way to the Middle East, and then going in the other direction, really going first to Korea and from Korea into Japan, and into Japan where they really made it uh, their own, where paper really uh, enters a whole other level of expression of, of uh, religious belief, in fact, of how, how important it is. There's a wonderful book written by a Canadian poet and papermaker, a woman named Dorothy Field, called Paper and Threshold, and she just talks about the importance of paper, really, as handmade paper, purity of paper, the white paper, hanging at the as you enter into these various Shinto shrines. And here is one. This is the shrine of Kawakami Gozen, the goddess of papermaking. The previous image was of Echizen, uh, Japan, about four hours northwest of Tokyo, 250 or so handmade papermakers still in Japan, maybe 40 of them there, 
But this is the this is the community where it is said this goddess, the goddess of papermaking, about 500 or so A.D., came to the villages and you don't make, make enough money on your rice, I will teach you how to make paper. She's a local deity. I don't think they pray to her uh, so much as they revere her. They look to her for guidance. Three days every, a year, they bring her down from the top of that mountain, which you see behind uh, the uh, shrine there. They parade her around town. It's a wonderful festival. They all vie for her, uh, her attention, and uh, she, they hope that she uh, uh, blesses them for, uh, for the year ahead. Here's kind of a close-up of some of that handmade paper, and that more or less is the legend of the goddess there in the lower right. And really, but really the reason I went to this particular uh, village was uh, if you want to spend a day with a living national treasure papermaker, then you have to go to Japan. And this is Ichibe Iwano the Ninth, the ninth uh, papermaker and his family to be Ichibe Iwano. And the name Ichibe is not automatically given to the firstborn son or even the secondborn son. It could be given to a, uh, a nephew. It's really given to a family member who agrees to follow in the tradition, who agrees to learn how to make paper as this man makes it. His father, Ichibe VIII, was Japan's a little bit of water, if I may, was Japan's first national treasure papermaker. And he is, has succeeded him. A delightful man, didn't speak any English, it was, but nevertheless it was like an audience where we spoke. And he, he said he strives to make paper the way the goddess taught us to make paper. And he, when I arrived, here he is on his, on his hands and knees, is his son in the lower image to the right. And what they're doing is they are actually going through every little individual piece of fiber, the, the kozo, the, the uh, bulbary fiber that I was talking about, taking out the little specks so there will be absolutely no impurities at all. And the, this is a mountainous village. The water comes down from the mountains. It's absolutely freezing cold. When we shook hands, his hand was beat red. Here he is coming out in his boots. He's <laughs> a delightful man. But here again, his wife makes all the paper, as I was telling you. <laughs> the whole time I was there, and I was there for half a day, she was making all these sheets of paper. As you can see, he's supervising. But his paper is regarded as the world standard by many. Uh, there are artists who, there was one artist in particular, a Canadian artist, uh, David Bull, I think his name is, won a jury competition, and he sent Ichibe the award because he said, your paper made it possible. And that's quite a, quite a distinction. There is the wife making paper. He really wanted, because the Japanese paper is really known for its strength, isn't it? And so that's the paper that's really used by conservators. It's very thin, and it's very, it's almost transparent. And yet you can see that one little fiber, it's the fibers are long. That's one of the hallmarks of that particular fiber. It's long, and it's very strong, very resistant to tearing. And when I was with him, he, uh, we went into this particular drying room, and he gave me the sheet of paper, and he said, here, tear it through the interpreter. And I tried, but I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't disrespect the paper. So he took it from me, and he tore it. He just wanted me to see how strong it is, and uh, there are those images there. And then finally, as we left, he took this little piece of paper. There's my little recorder there, and that's a, that's a little piece of his paper upon which he wrote, The Joy of Living with Paper. So this image is the one on your poster. Thank you, but that's a detail from this. Uh, uh, 751 or so A.D., uh, it is said, and fairly well recorded, uh, but the Abbasid Caliphate and the Chinese Tang Dynasty met 
and the territorial war at Samarkand in Central Asia. The, the Arabs were victorious, and as a condition of uh, preserving their lives, a number of the Chinese, who were papermakers, taught the Arabs how to bake paper almost immediately. And you can date it. It's just this part of the world becomes the center of papermaking for the next 500 or so years. And you can just trace what happens. I mean, the first modern bureaucracy starts uh, uh, to develop. The Ottomans use paper to record the, their, uh, uh, all of their governmental activities. It's not only used for papermaking. Notation begins. Some wonderful scholarly uh, studies done on how notation really begins as a discipline because of this, this abundance of paper. But what the Arabs also introduced, and you can see it in this particular image, uh, uh, and this is really a later image. It's a uh, Kashmiri manuscript from the British Library from the 1800s. What they didn't really do is record how they did it. Uh, they really did, did very few images, uh, wrote very little about it. Dard Hunter only gives it a two or three paragraphs in the history of and technique. This is very little about it, but there are a lot of sources that I was able to uh, consult, people I was able to interview, and uh, I was able to really kind of give a sense of of uh, not only how paper really moved from uh, China and the Middle East and the Far East to there, but from there into, into Europe. But what they also introduced was making paper from rags, and which is really, as we know, rags make the best paper. And you can really see that's part of a stamping process in the upper right. They're sorting the rags in the upper left. They're doing all of the same basic techniques that you will see in hand paper making as everywhere you go. And of course, Islamic paper making, uh, and calligraphy, uh, becomes the highest form of Islamic art, uh, even more so than any sort of imagery. Uh, and really, they had paper for 300 years before they allowed printing. And there were a lot of studies about, you know, the consequences of the of the Islamic resistance to to introducing printing. But you can see this beautiful paper. That's a, a Persian sheet in the upper right. That's in the Walters Art Museum. That's half of a globe. That's uh, the uh, uh, Metropolitan Museum Museum of Art in the left. These are Quranic inscriptions, 13th century Iranian, uh, very beautiful. This is an 11th century Quran in the British Library. 11th century is important because uh, uh, it's from North Africa, and from North Africa we know that paper making enters Europe for the first time into Spain, which for 900 years was a, a Muslim-held uh, territory. So it's right about this time that the first Paper mills in Europe start in Spain. From Spain, they go to Italy, 1086. Now, I kind of sweep through the European history here. Again, bless Dard Hunter. Uh, one thing I do, however, is try and give you some images as, they have, as European papermaking has been recorded in European sources. The first paper mill north of the Alps uh, was established in Nuremberg, 1390. What's this, 50 years before uh, Gutenberg uh, develops metal type? I mean, would he have done that had, he not, had there not been paper available? Would he have invented uh, metal printing from metal type if, if, he, if the printing was to be done only on parchment? I don't think so. I don't know how many Gutenberg Bibles were done on vellum or parchment, whichever the surface was. Maybe I think ten or so survived, but they were, it was really invented to print on paper. The story go, goes that Stromer went to Italy. He persuaded a couple of Italian paper makers to come up. Uh, this, by the way, is from the Nuremberg Chronicle, and that little inset is Stromer's mill that you see in the lower right, uh, 1493. But it was established in 1390. Uh, Stromer kept very good records. 
the Italians saw that this was a very good thing. They wanted to bring their own people up and become his partners. He had them arrested, locked into a room for four days, and then they just fed them only bread and water, and then they decided to uh, work for him, and they did. But it's a very, uh, without any further problems. Uh, that's Jostaman, the Book of Trades, 1568. Again, those are stamping, stamping wheels, uh, stampers that you see outside the windows. That's the first illustration of stampers at the right, Vittorio Zanka. Bucher, 1662, Diderot Encyclopedia, many illustrations of paper making. Yet another, uh, this is Lalande, very important book, a little bit before uh, uh, Diderot talks about uh, paper making. And again, wonderful illustrations, Diderot again. This is very, these are Dard Hunter's own copies of a seven volume book, uh, which I handled at the uh, Robert Williams, I don't know why they named it for Williams, it should be named for Dard Hunter but it's at the Museum of Papermaking in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, this is a very scarce book. I think there are fewer copies of the complete set than there are Gutenberg Bibles. I mean, there just aren't many of the complete seven volumes. I, and there's no census because there are seven volumes, and you find it's got a very long German title. I won't try it, but it basically translates experiments in making paper without rags. And he, what he did, he was a famous botanist, he grew all of these 80 or so different kinds of uh, vegetables in his garden or gathered them, and he made his own paper, and he tipped in samples in every in volumes. That I, I handled this one, the Hunter volume, and also uh, the one at the Houghton Library, uh, which is a wonderful uh, example as well, and it's pretty remarkable. But, but you can see the, the quest for fiber just becomes uh, a sub-story uh, in, in the papermaking story all, all to itself. What are we going to use? Because rags are a limited commodity. You know, in the, the uh, Asian model, you can use the, the bast, but it develops in the, in the Middle East and then in Europe that the source is rags. And here are two uh, uh, items printed in 1801. Here you have the crane. Zenus Crane is announcing the formation of the Crane Paper uh, Company. 1801, ladies, save your rags. And uh, you can read the whole thing, but we'll pay the best price. And he makes, made wonderful paper. I spent a day at the Crane Mill. Still seven generations of family ownership. They are the exclusive uh, manufacturers of paper for American currency. Meanwhile, over in England, this is, a, this is the copy, by the way, also the Houghton copy. A man named Matthias Koops is trying to get some initiatives going. The really key line, if you can read it, printed on paper manufactured solely from straw. Now, I handled the Houghton copy, and it is yellow like this. It looks like straw. But you open it after 200 years, it smells like fresh-cut grass. It was remarkable. Uh, but you can see, again, the various things people are doing to try and get fiber. And here we have Harper's Weekly. You know, this is, a, this is the time that's no more. The rag pickers, uh, New York City, 1870. Another Harper's Weekly, 1868. The rag pickers. And then, sweeping through... Uh, this is outside of New York City, across the Hudson, the Markel uh, paper mill, where 100% of the fiber comes from recycled material, mainly from the concrete canyons of Manhattan. All those papers that go in the blue recycle bins go out to uh, the Markel plant. They make a million rolls of toilet paper a day. I have a whole chapter on one and done, I call it, the whole... Uh, 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 the social and cultural impact of this particular commodity and the indispensability of it, I dare say. You can see COW, clean office waste, curbside, self-explanatory, magazine on the right. 
pretty interesting. Now, this is the Gladfelter Mill out in Pennsylvania. Uh, this particular company, other well, other paper companies were kind of losing as uh, the consumption of uh, newsprint was going down. These people who still make, by the way, just about all of the paper for books for for uh, uh, the major publishers. My book is printed on Gladfelter paper, the end sheets, Gladfelter paper. But they decided to diversify. They went from a $500 million a year company, five generations of family ownership. Nobody's ever heard of them because they've never done business with the public, only with uh, end users. Uh, so they diversified from 1998. Now they're, they're, their annual sales are just a bit under $2 billion a year. And how did they do that in 15 years when everybody else's... Uh, uh, Sales were going down. They diversified. They claimed to make paper for 1,000 different products. So here, this is the wood. I wanted to go to an integrated mill where the wood came in from one end and paper came out the other. And this was one. And they, they maintain, they make, as I said, paper for 1,000 different products. 85% of the paper for uh, United States uh, postage, postage stamps. 85 or so percent of all the paper for t all the tea bags in the world. Uh, they make uh, uh, beer labels. They make uh, sweaters, those little things for uh, cleaning your house. 75% uh, of the paper for Hallmark greeting cards. And it's really an amazing uh, bit. If you talk about the paperless society, I think you really what you're talking about uh, is maybe, maybe uh, the way we are going to receive information or, or record our documents and do our bureaucratic business. I don't think you're talking about the rest of society. And I think paper for, for information really only represents about 5% of what's produced. And this was a, a Ford Renee machine at the Gladfelter plant. It dates to 1879, the day that my wife and I were there. They were making paper for postage stamps. It's been updated a few times. There are the rolls of paper just spinning away. And I like this particular uh, image because these pastel rolls up that you see at the left, they were for Hallmark. This is Crane at the, at the lower right and the lower left. I really couldn't get a good picture, but what you see there, it was going so quickly, 60 miles an hour. Uh, those are Franklins zipping by over your head. Those are, that's paper for $100 notes, and this is a little spot check or some of the Franklins. Pretty interesting. All right, this is a quiz. Can anybody tell me what we're looking at? Nobody knows. These, I maintain, I argue, I love it, because they're so vanishingly scarce. And when I was, go when I was visiting the Massachusetts Historical Society, Peter Drummey, the wonderful librarian there, uh, was one of Terry Ballinger's students, by the way. He said, I'm, a, I'm one of Terry's students, and there's so many of them, and Peter being one of them. Uh, he had this sheet out. What these are are stamps. It was a selection of stamps from the Stamp Act. Most of them, of course, were either destroyed or shipped back to England after the Stamp Act failed. But if you study the run-up to the Revolutionary War, the Stamp Act of 1765 was a, a tax, 50 or so clauses, every one of which was a tax on the way Americans had come to rely on paper in their daily lives. If you wanted to, uh, and they could do this, it was an internal tax, because if you wanted to validate a property transfer, if a deed were to have legal, uh, the force of law, then you had to pay these stamps. The only thing is the Americans wouldn't abide it. They destroyed most of the stamps. It was never enforced, but uh, our good friend uh, uh, Jeremy Belknap, who was the founder of the uh, uh, Massachusetts Historical Society, he saw merit in saving some of these things, and there are very few. The Library Company of Philadelphia has some. I believe there's some at the Postal Museum. 
uh, in Washington, and I know there are some at the National Archives in the UK, but otherwise they're very scarce. And of course, as the Stamp Act was about to go into effect on October 31st, 1765, that's it, expiring in hopes of resurrection to life again. That was the fatal flaw of the Stamp Act, by the way. Not that they meant to tax the ways that we had come to rely on paper, but they had decided to tax the newspapers. Arthur Schlesinger Sr. said that was the fatal flaw. That killed it. You don't fool around with the guy who has the bottle of ink. This was going to double the price of newspapers. You're going to have to pay additional taxes on advertisements. They closed their papers. This was a William Bradford. He did close his paper. Not, there, are many, there are three William Bradfords in this book. This happens to be uh, one of them. He left. He never published again. He, he fought for the... Uh, 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 Continental Forces, he distinguished himself at the Battle of Germantown. So I have a chapter called Face Value, and it starts with a, an attempt to consider the cliché that some things are not worth the paper they're printed on. <laughs> and so about this time, 2008, I went on eBay, and I, for 50 cents, I bought, and I overpaid, I think, I, I got a $100 trillion Zimbabwe banknote. So really, I maintain, I argue in the book, that paper is the only manufactured product I can think of that gets value totally, strictly, solely, and only by the intellectual construct that we put upon it, be it writing, printing, art, whatever, a surrogate for value. Uh, and here's a $100 trillion note, and it, it, was, it was valueless. And this, but, but if you look at it, it's a fine piece of paper. There's a nice security uh, uh, thread there. It was, that in fact, made by the same manufacturer in Germany who made these notes during the Weimar years. You can see this fellow making a, uh, using it for wallpaper, another woman using it to fire her stove. People using it, it was just ridiculous, but the same manufacturer. When people lose confidence in the, in the, uh, in the particular currency, then it's valueless. So we, a young woman in our class this morning from the Winter Third Museum uh, this is a John and Carolyn Grossman collection of antique images. They didn't announce a number, but of course you know this is a spectacular museum with every, every manner of wonderful artifact. But as I understand it, more money was spent for this paper collection of ephemera than any other single acquisition. It was put together by a couple from San Francisco. They gathered 250,000 uh, uh, chromolithograph pieces of ephemera from 1820 to 1920 at the rate of, I think, 50 a day over a 30-year period, if you, whatever the math is, to get 250,000. But it's a remarkable collection, including the first Christmas card, one of the first Valentines. This is from, these are from the New York Public Library, the great uh, uh, Arendt's tobacco collection, posters. I write at length about cigarettes and, and, uh, and uh, paper cartridges for ammunition but the cigarette would not exist. So that's, a, that's the downside. That's called fiery consequences, that particular chapter. And I, sh I kind of develop, I show, I believe, quite persuasively how the cigarette developed from the paper cartridge, how that actually was a, was a consequence during the Crimean War and how uh, soldiers brought, brought it back to their various countries. And you have this wonderful collection of 250,000 items at the New York Public Library. And cigarettes also were sold entirely by paper advertising of which these are several examples. This is the $2 million ephemera club. That Honus Wagner baseball card is probably the rattiest piece of paper you'll ever see. It's probably no bigger than a postcard. And yet, that's what, $2.7 million. Why is it somebody would be, and that's the famous Wayne Gretzky card, by the way. 
So it's gone through several numbers of owners. The Action Comics, 1938. Uh, that's the Nicholas Cage copy, by the way, that was reported stolen about 12 years ago. The insurance company paid him $150,000. It was recovered about four years ago, and then it was sold at South of East for $2.1 million, 21 million times its original newsstand price for some terrible acidic paper. That's the Trey Skilling stamp, 1859, the only one to exist. It's supposed to be green, not yellow, many millions of dollars. Just recently, I just put this in, four pieces of paper on a hotel stationery. Uh, Bob Dylan uh, uh, song, just sold last month, uh, four sheets sketched out on hotel stationery. Also last month, the British Guiana, uh, one cent magenta, $9.5 million. South Greece said 15 to 20. They also said uh, uh, 20 to 30 for this, which is the Bay Sound book, which was a duplicate copy from the Boston Public. I handled this particular one, not in the greatest of shape. And this is not meant to be all about the money, by the way, but, but it's just a, an examination of value, how, we, how paper accrues value or no value. And just to give you some recent examples, but this is the, this is the record, the all-time record holder for one sheet of paper, $48 million, Raphael, head of a muse, uh, and a preparatory sketch for a Sistine Chapel painting. But Peter Drummy brought out this piece of paper. This is priceless. Of the 12 million documents he has in his custody, he said this is his favorite. And I said, why? You have John Adams' letters. You have remarkable things. You have Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. You had Everett's response. Diaries. If you look, this is signed by William Bradford, 1638. He was the governor of the uh, Plymouth... Uh, these are colonies. They're basically two individual countries. And he writes a letter to John Winthrop up in Boston. It's a letter of some substance. There's a territorial dispute going on, and Hutchinson's causing some problems. And Bradford's reply is sketched out in the same piece of paper because it was a blank section. And Peter said, this is just to illustrate how precious paper was at this time. He said, and you see it throughout our collections. You never wasted an inch of paper. You look at the diaries at how small uh, the writing is. And the actual letter was sent in another piece of paper. This came into the uh, MHS, MHS of the Winthrop Collection, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, Kenny Rendell, Kenneth Rendell, you all probably know, he has a remarkable World War II museum outside of Natick, Massachusetts. If you have a chance to go there, you must go. He has every imaginable kind of uh, a military artifact. Many, many paper objects kept in that safe, and when I was there, he pulled this document out of the safe, told me I held it in my hands, the, uh, it's in German, the writing there in the, uh, uh, the docker ink is that of Adolf Hitler, and the left is Neville Chamberlain's. This is the draft document for the Munich Agreement. And Ken says, you are holding, what you are holding in your hands is the document that starts World War II. Now, if that doesn't give you a, a little bit of... Uh, a rush about the power of a piece of paper, and it's not in dollars and cents, but you're looking at something. And I was so pleased to have a few moments earlier today to walk through your Albert Small collection and see your Dunlap copy of the uh, uh, first of America's birth certificate on a piece of paper, not on a piece of parchment. That comes later. The first edition, the first appearance of our Declaration of uh, Independence was printed in the rush of eight hours uh, in John Dunlap's printing office. Uh, in, uh, 
in Philadelphia. That's that's a that copy compared to Smalls is just uh, I have to say Smalls is magnificent. The first folio. What what can I say about the first folio? That's one of eighty that I handled at the Folger Library, and every time I see it, or, or I'm privileged to touch one. It's quite an amazing experience. Now we talk about virtual reality or wonders uh, wonders of the world that no longer exist but exist only on paper. Uh, these are the Jacques Carré drawings of the Acropolis, 1674, seven years before the Venetians bombarded the Acropolis and some years before Lord Elgin came in and uh, stripped what was left and took it off to London. And I mentioned this to Michael when I was here, and he said, well, if you're going to write about that, you really ought to take a look at this fellow, William Dugdale, and what he did with respect to the uh, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, which was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666, it was these, these, uh, all of these monuments throughout England were falling into disrepair. He was, be, he was uh, beseeched to go out and do an inventory, and he wrote this remarkable history, used all of the uh, paper documents that were there. He says, it says so, if you can read it, there on the uh, uh, title page. But he also had Wenceslas Holler do some uh, illustrations, and you have that, and you have this, and you have many others, and this great world wonder only exists on paper. Then, of course, from that tragedy, you get the new St. Paul's Cathedral, and you're, now you're getting into an era where paper is really proliferating throughout Europe, and new skills are developing, architecture, engineering, which I, engineering in particular, the Industrial Revolution, I argue, would not exist without paper, without blueprints. Uh, how could you possibly make a loco locomotive if one set of workers were making wheels and somebody else was making the boiler and everything is supposed to come together and fit precisely? You need precise documents. Well, Sir Christopher Wren, over 35 years, these are his drawings in the British Museum. Uh, as you can see, they're developing skills. And this is a print from 1848 of the finished product. These are some of the uh, uh, instruments that are now at the uh, uh, Columbia University, the Andrew Alperin Collection of uh, Architectural Instruments from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Really, they were devised to, 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 to transmit from what is going on in the mind through the eye down through the hand onto a sheet of paper. Remarkable. These are some blueprints at the National Archives. I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, first industrial city, planned industrial city, uh, and thankfully all of those uh, architecture, all those engineering drawings are still there up in Lowell at the uh, Lowell National Historical Park and the University of Lowell, and have it all in Watman paper, by the way. And I talk a little bit about it, but here, the, here is what you can do with paper. So I had a nice, wonderful interview with Martin Kemp, the Leonardo authority, and I asked him, would the genius of Leonardo da Vinci have, been, have reached full expression without the availability of paper? He didn't hesitate an instant. He said, I don't see how he possibly could have done what he did without paper. Uh, of course, he was the son of a notary. He, everywhere he went, he took paper. He drew. And when you see his mind at work, when he's drawing these remarkable images, many of which are familiar, many of, many of which we discover for the first time, they're quite remarkable. Beethoven, who was deaf through many of his uh, uh, productive uh, years, couldn't hear the great symphonies that he composed. He never went anywhere without paper. There's a scholar... Uh, at UC, UCLA, Robert Winter, who did a census of all the known uh, Beethoven manuscripts. Thomas Edison, again, 3,500, that seems to be the number, 3,500 of these workbooks, had the privilege of handling a few. That's his sketch for the light bulb, has a filament of paper at the core. That's his sketch for the first phonograph, 
paraffin on paper, wax paper, the very first one. Photograph at the, uh, in the subway at uh, D.C. Of course, I have a chapter on bureaucracy. That's real, honest-to-God red tape. They were disassembling the pa- these documents for uh, restoration, and I said, gee, what are you going to do with those pieces of red tape? They said, throw them away and give me a few. You know, I'm a collector, happy to get them. Just uh, David Ferriero, who many know here, now the National Archivist, uh, 80 billion pieces of paper. Custard, I'm going to move very quickly now. Uh, I have chapters in uh, preservation. That's the original Monopoly plans. That drawer in the upper right, the most requested uh, archive at the National Archives is Roswell, New Mexico. JFK second, uh, Watergate third. Oh, let's go back. That's a paper story. Hanging chads. How many weeks? How many weeks was our national election? held up while we tried to determine what somebody had on their mind. Is it a punch or is it isn't a punch? Uh, is it a vote? And really, uh, but we have also learned that really to ensure an honest and fair election, you still need a paper ballot. You have to have a record. I'll just keep going very quickly here. This is the Getty. Went to, went to quite a few. The Weitzman Preservation Center up at Harvard. These are pretty pictures. Oak Bluffs. It's all paper balloons. Uh, and, and of course, recreation, and they do suggest these, don't they? The Montgolfier balloon, which of course was made with paper from the Montgolfier family, five layers of paper, 1789. Uh, the first humans to fly aloft flew in a, in a, in a uh, balloon made of five layers of paper. And then in World War II, uh, the Japanese uh, trying to react angrily to the attack by Jimmy Doolittle on their homeland made. 10,000 10, balloons made with handmade paper, 9,000 of which were launched, 1,000 of which reached North America, uh, all falling harmlessly. Of course, they couldn't direct them. One of which, however, did land in Oregon. Uh, a woman and five children on an outing happened by. One of them apparently pulled a toggle, and they all died. And that's the only example of anyone, any civilians being killed during World War II on the American continent was by a paper balloon. Well, here you go. Uh, somebody, I hear, hear from writers, uh, from readers, you don't have ticker tape. You don't have the ticker tape machines. Well, here's the John Glenn, I put this in for you guys. This is the Canyon of Heroes, 1962. And that is real ticker tape. They do a parade now, they send out to Connecticut for confetti because there's no more machines doing ticker tapes. But how did the ticker tape machine really just transform American finance? Another, another reader sent me this. Gee, the Allen paper car wheel. Didn't you know that there was this company that made railroad wheels and used, stuffed it with paper in there? So I thought I'd put that one in. Did you see the movie Argo? Tony Mendez, that's the real Tony Mendez. I met him new, three years before Ben Affleck knew his name. I have a chapter on identity. We are what our papers say we are. That whole, that whole Argo operation depended entirely on paper. They don't get into it that much. They made certain, he's showing me here his little, uh, his little kit. That's his little kit that he was supposed to turn in when he retired. But that's his flaps and seals kit. That's how they make entry into, into, uh, into envelopes. That's how they split pieces of paper. That's how they put microdots on sheets. Fabulous story. Well, we come to the final sequence here, and I have a chapter that I call Elegy in Fragments. It just seemed to me that all that what we all witnessed on September 11th, 2001, all that that horrific day, and I just that image of all that paper shooting up into the sky, 
All of my books start with an image. I have to say this, and I usually use them to begin the book. I chose instead to end the book with this one because I wondered, are there archivists, are there curators trying to figure out these tons and tons of paper? Now, isn't it I, I, I just uh, horribly ironic that the only artifacts of any significance that survived that day were paper? Uh, the, new, the new museum, and there, there, are very, there are some things, uh, uh, fire engines that are twisted, a few things, but paper, paper, paper. I wondered, are, are people gathering these things? Are, are we getting any of these posters that were put up overnight? These please, paper became the only means of communication. And for the most part, the paper that was pretty much routine, everyday stuff, stock transactions, uh, pleadings, a lot of legal documents. These are various images that you see. This was a, I used this one in the book, an amazing one. Here out at the, uh, at the landfill where they're going through, again, paper. But there were a few things. This is a, a business card of a man named Pablo Ortiz. This particular card came to rest on a windowsill in, uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, was it Brooklyn? It was across the river. I think it was Brooklyn. And that night of, of uh, September 11th, and the fellow kept it for a few years. You can see it's been singed around the corners. He gave it to the new museum when they were opening up. The day I was there, we looked. they had just found out who Pablo Ortiz was. And if you Google him with 9-11, you'll see he is one of the most... Uh, one of the most extraordinary heroes of that day, one out, who did not wear a uniform. He was not a p police officer or a firefighter. He had another man, uh, Frank Martini. They survived. Instead of escaping and going down, and the 9-11 calls that were made all reaffirm this, they were responsible for saving the lives of at least 100 people that day. They both perished, and that night his business card comes to rest in a windowsill across the East River pretty powerful. Well, when I went down there to see the curator, Jan Ramirez, who was formerly at the New York uh, uh, Historical Society, uh, she had slid this piece of paper, common bond paper. This was originally going to be the title of my book. And so there, it's pretty self-explanatory. 84th floor, West Office, 12 people trapped. The story, a woman escaping the scene. This piece of paper falls at her feet. She picks it up. She reads it. She runs, she gives it to a guard outside the Federal Reserve Bank. He looks at it, and he looks up, and the tower collapses. It's, so the chain of custody on this is impeccable. It's, 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 it's an authentic piece of paper. And then when the new uh, museum was, being, uh, was announced, the Federal Reserve turned it over. And when I was there, and they had no idea who had written it because it's not signed, but I said to Jen, I said, what's that smudge there? She said, well, we believe that to be blood. And I said, gee, don't you think, is it possible? And she said, yes, it is. You know, but they did have at that time more than 30,000 fragments that they were working with. And that was that. So that was in 2009. Two years ago, I'm wrapping up the book, and I am going to wrap it up. This is the last thing. Uh, I called her, and she said, we have a hit. We know who it was. And the woman, uh, and it just had happened that day. She just learned the... Uh, 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 medical examiner had called the woman and called her in and the woman didn't was really wasn't ready to talk but then I got a call and they said Denise Scott would be happy to talk to you I drove down to Stanford I've done thousands of interviews in my life that was the toughest one but you talk about a piece of paper retaining its message it's not an ink and here it is over 10 or 12 years and it really wasn't closure I really don't like that word because for this woman she thought her husband had died instantly and what she found out instead is that he survived, and it was right at the center where that United Airlines flight struck. And they had three daughters, and one of the daughters said, Mommy, Daddy must have been so scared. She said, he wasn't scared. 
he was a hero and he was trying to help his friends. There were 12 people. And uh, that's the final image of the book and that's the final, that's the epilogue of the book. And I'm, I've, I've gone over my allotted time. I apologize, but I really thank you all for coming out. Great group. I love Rare Book School and I, I love you all for supporting it. Thank you very much. Do we have time for a couple? Two questions because fasted people have to go do homework. <laughs> <laughs> You're damn well going to do your homework. <laughs> so, so we'll take two. You two. can moderate your questions. This and woman, this woman over here. Questions in the reception. Okay. Um, my instructor is Gerald Silver, and I ah, asked him today. Gerald's here. Great. Uh, why the garden sale was controversial, and he said I had to ask you that question. I think you have to read Chapter Six of General Madness. <laughs> Is that, is that a good answer, Michael? Because <laughs> it's very complicated. Really very long and complicated, and it'll take a while. Read Gentle Madness. I trust you all your questions will be answered. So, anyone else? Well, we did it. We did it with two minutes to spare. No one else? Great, thank you. <laughs> thank you.